0: You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. Uh, It's so good to uh, be together and to worship this morning. Thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at BCC as the lead pastor, and we are just so thankful that you've uh, chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. We are glad you're here and extend my my, uh, welcome to you. Uh, as well. But for the rest of us, uh, as I look forward to each week, let's get into God's Word together this morning. So go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you uh, typically use to get your eyes on God's Word throughout the week. And would you meet me in Esther chapter 5 this morning? We're going to be continuing uh, where we picked, where we left off two weeks ago in Esther chapter 5. We're crossing the halfway point in our uh, fall series, uh, When God Seems Silent. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would I really encourage you to uh, be able to follow along with us this morning, and there's a couple ways you could do that. You can just pull out a smartphone and Google Esther 5 ESV, and it'll pop right up there for you, uh, or there is a rack of Bibles in the back that if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we would love for you to just take one of those as our gift to you, make it your own, use it, and keep it. We would just love for you to, to have uh, the Bible for yourself. Let me go ahead and pray for us this morning, and then we will jump into Esther chapter 5. Father, again, we are so grateful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. You are so worthy of that and so much more. We thank you for your word. We ask that as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit be moving among us, to soften hearts, to challenge us, to encourage us, to equip us, and to ultimately look more like your son, Jesus ask that you would protect us from pride that we look at in this chapter, protect this pulpit from pride, protect myself from pride. Would you uh, fill me now and use me and bless us as we look at your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since moving here uh, at the beginning of May, uh, our family has spent countless hours back here at Elm Avenue Park enjoying the the playground and the the walking trails and, and all that that park has to offer. Last Saturday evening was no exception to that rule. We, again, go there pretty frequently. And so it was a, you can just picture it, it was a a perfect fall evening. It was nice, crisp, cool weather. Leaves were changing. The sun was setting. We were just going for a family walk. It was just really a a really wonderful evening. As we were walking along the trail, though, suddenly we walked straight into a wall of that uh, familiar and terrible smell of a skunk. A skunk. Kind of ruins the evening, doesn't it? Ruins the, the mood and all that we're, we're going there. And see, skunks have such a powerful and distinct smell that even as I'm mentioning that, you can probably imagine the smell of a skunk right now. It's just that familiar and distinct to us. Now, if you're a four-year-old like my son, the, the reaction to that smell is, let's go track this thing down and find it, because this is pretty cool, and it's a wild animal, and uh, this could be a pretty awesome adventure. Uh, but for any adult, you usually have three reactions— First reaction is, um, that's terrible. Why on earth would God create an animal that smells like that? Uh, Second reaction is, I need to look around me and make sure that this thing is not like hiding behind a tree somewhere like ready to jump out and strike again. And third reaction is, let's get out of here because this is just terrible. Even in an extremely divided age where we can't seem to agree on anything, I'm pretty sure if we were to take a poll this morning, everyone in this room would agree that skunks smell terrible. Now, Also last week... Uh, We were out shopping uh, in the evening, one evening as a family, and we bought a new candle for our family in our house. We're out shopping as a family, like I said, and as Veronica was uh, shopping in one part of the store, Silas and I decided to entertain ourselves by uh, going to the part of the store that has the candles and just pass the time by smelling the different scents there. And guys, let me tell you, I found a sugar cookie scented candle that smells good enough to eat. I I know that sounds crazy, but it sounds good enough to eat. I mean, if you light this thing, it smells like there are fresh sugar cookies about to come out of the oven, which only leads to the disappointment that there are not sugar cookies about ready to come out of the oven. (laughs) But the point is, while that skunk in Elm Avenue Park smelled repugnant and repulsive, and it repelled us and turned us away, the scent of that sugar cookie candle draws me in and it's an attractive and pleasing smell and I just can't wait to light it in the evenings and have my hopes crushed that there are sugar cookies (laughs) baking in somewhere. But let me ask you this, this question this morning. If you were covered in something that you knew God found repulsive and would repel him and keep him at arm's length, would you do whatever it took to scrub every inch of your body to get that scent off of you? And second, if, if you knew that there was a scent that was attractive and pleasing to the Lord and would draw him in and, and, and invite him to show you grace, would you then bathe yourself in it from head to toe? See, scripture tells us that's not an imaginary situation. 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6 tell us that there is indeed an attitude that is repulsive to the Lord and there's also an attitude that attracts to the Lord and pleases him and invites him so to borrow from Peter and James this morning, here's our big idea, our, our one-sentence overarching theme of this passage that's going to tie Esther chapter 5 together for us. Our, our big idea this morning is this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's jump into Esther chapter 5 as we see that playing out in two different characters this morning. So because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, number one this morning, Humble people are ready to be used by God. Humble people are ready to be used by God. Do you look with me at Esther chapter 5? We're going to go ahead and read the, the first eight verses of chapter 5 as we see the first section here. narrator says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow... I will do as the king has said. Chapter 5 starts out with the phrase, On the third day, and it's, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Esther, so let me just uh, refresh our memories to where we are in this book so we can all be on the same page here. Remember, God's people are exiled in the Persian Empire under the wicked king Ahasuerus, who is better known by his Greek name of Xerxes. Esther has been providentially placed by the Lord to be the queen of Persia. Even though she's a Jew, but nobody knows that yet. Haman is the evil man who is now second in command of the kingdom, and he has weaselled his way into getting a royal decree issued that says that in eleven months the Jewish people are going to be exterminated. And Mordecai, like we saw in chapter four last or two weeks ago, is Esther's cousin adopted father. He's reminded Esther that listen, God has put you where you are for a purpose. So do something, take this opportunity, and he encouraged her to, to risk her life, to go before the king, even though she hadn't been summoned, and to do something to save her people. And when we left off, Esther had been convinced, and, and she said, listen, okay, well, let's, let's get on our faces before the Lord, let's, let's fast and pray. So she and Mordecai and the Jewish people did just that. They, they started praying and fasting and seeking the Lord's face for how do we handle this? What do we do next? In other words, they humbled themselves and asked God to do something big. This wasn't a situation where it was like, you know what, maybe we should just pray about this for a little bit and see what happens. This was a situation that was, listen, we can't do anything except humble ourselves before the Lord and ask him to show up and to do something awesome. They saw how big their problem was. They saw how dependent and and small they were, but they remembered that, listen, our God is so much bigger than all of that. So they humbled themselves before the Lord they acknowledged their weakness and their dependence on him instead of trying to make themselves big and find their own strategy and, and solve this issue in their own strength and their own wisdom. They humbled themselves before the Lord. Remember we said two weeks ago that Esther could have surely found plenty of reasons to, to look herself in the mirror and give herself a pep talk to convince herself, listen, Esther, you can do this on your own. She could have looked herself in the mirror and said, listen, you are the, you're the queen of Persia. Like, you, there, There's really not a whole lot of risk here. What's going to happen to you? She could have said, remember, Esther, you you are a beautiful woman. That's how you got this position in the first place. So everything's going to be okay. But she didn't do that. She humbled herself before the Lord. And because of that, God's about to show her grace as she continues to humble herself and submit herself to the Lord. He's going to use her in awesome ways. The rubber meets the road now in verse 2 when Esther gets herself ready and she goes and stands outside the throne room of King Ahasuerus. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Just imagine what's going through her mind as her heart is pounding and her mind is racing, and she she knows that her next step literally could mean her death sentence. She said herself back in chapter four that everyone knows that if you go before the king without being summoned, and he doesn't extend his scepter to welcome you, then basically it's just it's off with your head. Historians tell us that that law was absolutely enforced. So it wasn't just some obscure hyperbole here. That law was absolutely, uh, absolutely enforced. And I even found this week that um, archaeologists have unearthed some uh, Persian sculptures that, that depict the Persian throne room with the king of Persia sitting on his throne. And behind him would be a Persian soldier holding a giant axe. You can just follow that picture where it goes and you know where that goes. But you know what else we know? The verse that we, I said many weeks ago to keep in our minds throughout this series. We know Proverbs 21.1 that says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. We know that God is sovereign over every single situation that we might ever find ourselves in. We know that he's sovereign over the situation that Esther's facing right now. And so when Ahasuerus sees Esther standing there uh, uninvited, it says, she won favor. It's the same word as grace. She won favor in his sight. And he extended his scepter to welcome her. I'm sure Esther exhaled a very deep breath at that moment, knowing that her life was at least safe for the time. Friends, that's God's providence in action. It's his unseen hand leaving his fingerprints all over the the details of this story, even when he seems silent. He's working here to accomplish his purposes through an ordinary person who has humbled herself before the Lord and submitted to doing things his way and his timing and however he wants. But not only do we see God's providence here in these first couple of verses, we also see God's gospel. See, just like Esther appeared here basically as a person condemned to die before the king that she had broken his law, every single one of us has broken the law of the sovereign king of the universe. We have sinned against God. We stand before him condemned to die if it's not for grace. But... Like Esther, there's nothing that we can do when we come to him to push our well, ourselves in or to, to argue our way in or to convince him to accept us. It's got to be by grace. He's got to extend his scepter to us of grace. And God did just that when he extended his scepter and he sent Jesus to this earth to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved. And he took all of our sins upon himself when he went to the cross in our place as our substitute. And God poured out his wrath on his own son in our place. So if we would humble ourselves and repent or turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, then we would be saved from certain death and be reconciled to the king of the universe. Not because, again, of anything that we did to to, to please him or to push ourselves in or to argue our way in, but only because of grace. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him for salvation and you aren't sure where you stand with God this morning, I would just remind you that his scepter of grace is extended to you right now. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus. He will save you. That grace is available to you. If you don't know what that looks like, if you have any questions, I would love to talk with you more about that after the service. But what we see right here in Esther 5 is that God is turning and softening Ahasuerus' heart towards Esther. Why? Because God shows grace to the humble. She had humbled herself her people had humbled themselves before the Lord. Not only does Ahasuerus welcome her and, and offer, he offers her up to half of his kingdom. This is an amazing thing here. He's just like, you, you name it and it's yours, Esther. Whatever you want. What's on your mind? I, I can tell that there's something bothering you. For you to risk your life to come to my throne room, something's on your mind. So what is it? But I'll give you whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. And it's at that point in the story that all of us want Esther to just get it all out there and, and to handle business and, and go up to him and, and put her finger right in the king's face and say, listen, do you know how Haman is deceiving you? Do you know what you're doing to my people? You need to fix it right now and, and, and get yourself together, Hashwares, because you are a terrible king and you just need to take some lessons from me. That's what we want Esther to do. But she doesn't. She keeps her humble, respectful attitude and she invites... Ahasuerus and Haman, her worst enemy, to dinner. And here's God's providence again. Ahasuerus is the king. He's a busy guy, of course. He clears his calendar and goes because his heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. We don't see here the same uh, impulsive and irate and angry and and irrational Ahasuerus that we saw in the first few chapters of Esther. You see that God is showing grace to the humble, Ahasuerus drops everything he does and, and goes and they have this dinner because God is answering the prayers of a people that had humbled themselves before the Lord and he's using Esther so after they ate dinner Ahasuerus asks her again Esther what's, what's on your mind like come on tell us let's, what's going on here and again we want to be like Esther this is your chance Haman's even sitting right there just throw him under the bus and, and move on you can get all of this out in the open right now but still not yet she doesn't pull the trigger she says, let's do this again tomorrow. And at that point, again, I want to be like, Esther, come on. Like, you don't know how many chances you're going to get with this. You need to, to just get it over with, do this. I wouldn't be playing around here and, and, and wasting time. But she doesn't. She doesn't pull the trigger yet. When I first started talking about preaching through the book of Esther a few months ago, one of the first questions that my wife asked me about this book was, why two dinners? Why, why is this happening? Why didn't Esther just... Spill our guts in this first dinner. Why did this happen twice? And and maybe you're wondering the same thing. Now, Unless you think I'm some uh, extremely brilliant Bible scholar that had like 15 reasons of why that's the case, as soon as she asked me, uh, let me just say I did not have an answer for my wife. Um, But after studying it in its context this week, I think there is a pretty good reason that this is happening, even if it's not quite as concrete as we might hope it to be. I think it's really as simple as this. I think God hit the pause button on Esther's plans right now because it wasn't the right time. God was working behind the scenes, and through his providence, he's just like, this is not the time. And, and Esther maybe not even knew what was going on or why, but God hit the pause button and it stopped. It's what we've been seeing throughout this book, isn't it? That God's working behind the scenes, and his unseen hand is leaving his fingerprints all over the, the details of our ordinary lives to accomplish his purposes. I think that's what's happening here. Again, we can't see it happening. God's, God's not mentioned in this book. It's not like God calls Esther into the other room and says, listen, uh, change of plans, uh, do this again tomorrow. That doesn't happen here. But have you ever had one of those experiences where you don't know why, but for whatever reason you knew God was leading you to do something that you couldn't explain? I think that's what's happening here. I think we can see it even more clearly if we are to zoom out a little bit and see this in its context of the surrounding chapters. Without spoiling next week's sermon, if we back up a little bit and and see what's going on here, we know that in the next chapter, in chapter 6, the very night that this is happening, God's going to give Ahasuerus a little providential insomnia, and he's going to use that to entirely flip the tables on Haman. So if Esther would have jumped the gun and gone ahead here, that wouldn't have happened yet. All of that, all of that that we see next week is going to be happening between this first and second dinner because God is setting the scenes. He's not done working here yet. But because Esther had humbled herself before the Lord, God led and she followed. She resigned herself from trying to do everything in her timing and her ways and her strength and she just let God work even when she didn't know all the details of why. She didn't know all the plans. She didn't know what would happen. She just humbled herself before the Lord. See, here's the thing. When you humble yourself before the Lord, your life becomes like a pair of gloves. When you humble for yourself, the Lord, your life becomes like a pair of of gloves, because to humble yourself before the Lord is to say, here I am, God. Just fill me. Use me however you want. Gloves, Gloves aren't in charge. Gloves don't dictate things. Gloves don't drive cars. The hands in the gloves do. And so to humble yourself is to say, God, here I am. Use me, fill me do whatever you want with my life. I'm all yours. And God loves that kind of humility. He, he honors that kind of humility. He shows grace to that kind of humility and he, he uses that kind of humility that applies to literally every part of our lives as followers of Jesus, as, as, as spouses, as parents, as friends of people who need the gospel. So often we're so uh, intent on, on jamming a, a square peg into a round hole, but then we're surprised when our friends don't respond to our rude and aggressive gospel presentations that sound more like a sales pitch than a conversation with a loving friend. Because we didn't humble ourselves before, before the Lord and say, God, we're going to do this your way and your timing with your words. However you want, just fill me and use me. Well, we're surprised then when our, our annoyed and frustrating parenting strategies don't work to, to, to change our kids into the type of young men and women that we think they should be because we didn't come before the Lord and say, God, here I am. Fill me and use me as a parent. Do what you want with me. Help me to parent my children in however you want, in your ways, your words, your timing, your strategies, God, not mine. Fill me and use me. Or we're surprised when our our relationships with our spouses don't improve because we're holding on to uh, our, our grudges that we won't let go of and we're continuing to nag instead of coming before the Lord and saying, God, I, I see some issues with my spouse that I would like to change, but maybe you want to change him too, God. But if that's going to happen, have got to do it in your way. So here I am. Would you fill me? Would you use me? Humble people don't hold on to their ways and their strategies and their strength. They come before the Lord and they say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Fill me and use me. I'm all of yours. Every step of my life, would you dictate it? Just fill me. Show me every step, show me every word to say, show me the tone in which to say it, everything, God, but here I am, fill me and use me like a glove. Are you doing that? Is that your posture before the Lord or are you you humbling yourself and putting yourself in the position of a glove and saying, God, here I am. Fill me with your spirit. Would you use me however you want, every step of my life, every day of my life? Or are you holding on to your determined strategies and strength and methods and timing and all of that to, to force your ways to happen. Remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the people that say, God, here I am, use me, fill me. So number one, God, humble people are ready to be used by God. And then number two this morning, what I want us to see from this passage is that prideful people are ready to use others as God. Prideful people are ready to use others as God. Look back with me at Esther chapter 5. As we finish this chapter, let's read verses 9 through 14. The narrator goes on and says, And Haman out, went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him. Now he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am divided by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Well, obviously, this dinner party that Esther threw was an extremely uh, exclusive invitation. But i got to say, Haman takes it to the entire next level. It says he left the dinner party uh, that day joyful and glad of heart. I could just imagine him walking out of that dinner that night and, and every single person that he met in the hallway, he would stop and talk to them and be like, hey, guess who I just had dinner with? You know who I had dinner with tonight? Yeah, the king and the queen. You know who else got invited? Yeah, nobody. Just me. Just me and the king and the queen. Just all. Aren't you jealous, right? I and mean, you've got to know I'm pretty special. I'm pretty amazing. I'm pretty important, right? You want my autograph now? Because I'll give it to you. Just pull something out and I'll sign it for you. I can imagine him having that conversation with everyone that he met as he walked down the, hi- out, down the hallway out of the palace that night because Haman is that guy. He thinks the world revolves around him. But his universe is shattered then when he gets down to the king's gate area. He sees Mordecai, the guy that he hates, the guy that, uh, that, that because, Haman, because Mordecai didn't honor Haman the, has gotten this whole thing started, he sees him and his whole earth is shattered. He loses it inside. Here's the thing. When your joy and your satisfaction and your identity is rooted in your circumstances or in worldly power or in status or anything like that, all of that joy can evaporate in a heartbeat. What Haman was feeling when he was dining with the king and the queen might have felt incredible. It might have felt like I am somebody important. All of this is incredible that's happening to me. I am am somebody. But that joy and satisfaction would never last. It wasn't true joy and satisfaction. Joy that's rooted in your circumstances is like fool's gold. It will only satisfy you as long as it takes for you to realize that this is not real. This is not deep. It's not lasting. It's not actually valuable. When I was a child, uh, my family and I, uh, for some reason, this childhood memory sticks out. We, We went on a vacation and to somewhere. I don't even remember where we went, but on the way there, we stopped at Luray Caverns in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And we went down underneath the earth into these caverns. And I remember still coming up after that and going into the gift shop and seeing that they were selling gold extremely cheap. This excited me as a child. I was so excited. And so I used all of the negotiation tactics of a six or seven-year-old uh, to convince my parents to let me spend the little bit of money I had to buy this gold. i like, why wouldn't you pass up this deal? So they gave in and I, I bought this gold and I thought I was something. I mean, none of my friends at school had gold in their, in their bedrooms. They didn't have gold nuggets. Like, this is awesome. Somewhere along the way, though, somebody broke the news to me, I suppose, that that was not gold, that was fool's gold. It might've looked like it to the untrained eye. I felt very important. I felt very excited by the fact that I had this gold nugget, but it wasn't real. It was basically worthless. I'm sure it wasn't even worth anywhere near the few dollars that we paid for it in the gift shop. And now I'm sure it's somewhere in my parents' attic at this point in life. But that's the reality of joy that is rooted in our circumstances. If things are going well, it might make you feel like you've got something important going on. It might make you feel like you're incredibly special, but it's only fool's gold. It's a cheap imitation of the real thing. true joy and satisfaction has got to be found in an unchanging source. It must be rooted in Jesus because he is the only one who will never leave you or forsake you. He will never fail you. His value will never decrease. He's unchanging. Your true joy and satisfaction and identity must be found in Jesus. That's where it's got to be found. God, help us to find that. That's what pride does, though. It's an amazing thing. That's the reality of joy, though. If things are going well, we we think it's there, but it's, it's not. Haman didn't learn this lesson yet. Haman's pride was injured here. So he decides to self-medicate. He decides to find things to please himself. And he calls together uh, some of his friends, his family, his, his wife, and he takes a page out of Ahasuerus' playbook in, uh, back in Esther chapter 1, and he, he says, listen, let's talk about how great I am. Let's get this let's go on. Like I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll put everything out there. And so literally he went home and he calls together his friends and his wife. And let me just read verse 11 for us to get together. This is crazy. It says, he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, which I'm sure his wife really appreciated that, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and now he'd advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. I mean, can we all just agree here that that Haman's pride is off the charts and out of control? I mean, imagine if somebody invited you to to lunch after church this morning, and as you were sitting there waiting for your food to show up, you're waiting for your waiter to bring your food, this person that you are having lunch with, pulls out a briefcase, and then pulls out uh, their portfolio, their family tree, and their resume. And then they spend the next 45 minutes sitting there uh, telling you how rich they are, how amazing their kids are, and how incredible, incredible at their job they are. It's not going to be a fun lunch, is it? But might be an exaggerated example, but how often do we know people that do that, the, the one-uppers of this world? How often might we be tempted to do that ourselves? But that's exactly what pride does. See, pride takes what humility rightly sees as blessing upon blessing upon blessing or grace upon grace upon grace, and and pride distorts that and makes us see it through our minds as achievement upon achievement upon achievement or status upon status upon status. He keeps going in verses 12 and 13. He says, "...that even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the, the feast that she had prepared." And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. But all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Instead of telling Haman to get a hold of himself and and fix himself, Haman's wife and his friends enable him. They tell him to build a, a gallows 50 cubits or about 75 feet high. They tell him to have Mordecai hanged on it. They say, listen, if you're such a big deal, if you're, if you're really as important as you say you are, then why don't you go to the king tomorrow morning after you've built these gallows and just have him get rid of Mordecai? Like, you could do that, right? I mean, this is all about you, right? You, you can handle that. You're an important person. And Haman's like, yeah, I am. You know what? That's a good idea. We can, we can do that. And that's the danger of pride and self-medication when things don't go your way. You think everyone else is there to serve you. You think that you are God and that you are ready to use other people. His wife and friends were there to make him feel better, but the, the pep talk didn't, wasn't enough. He, he wanted Mordecai dead and gone. He wouldn't be satisfied till that happened. When our joy and satisfaction isn't rooted in Christ, we'll always turn towards something else for self-medication. I'm not saying you're going to go home this afternoon and and decide to have someone killed so that you have a smoother afternoon, but the reality is that we constantly turn towards other things. Some of them might seem incredibly innocent, some of them we might recognize as incredibly dangerous, but when things don't go your way, where do you turn? Do you turn to Christ to remind yourself that your identity is in Him and that He is the only source of true joy and satisfaction? Or do you turn to other things? Far too many people have hurt themselves and the people around them by chasing joy and satisfaction in dangerous places. We know the, the risks and the, the danger and how foolish it would be to chase happiness and joy and satisfaction in places like the bottom of a bottle or in drug use or in pornography or affairs. We, we can sit here and recognize those as clearly that would be a, a foolish decision to chase happiness there. But just because we don't chase joy and satisfaction in those places doesn't mean that we're still not chasing our joy and satisfaction In fool's gold. Some of the more innocent places that we might be tempted to turn are places like family, food, shopping, entertainment, hobbies, sports, work. We're tempted to turn those places for our joy and satisfaction. I'll tell you what mine is. When I'm having a a rough week or a a rough day, instead of turning to Christ and reminding myself of my identity in Him and that He is the only true source of joy and satisfaction, the temptation for me is to have some guy that works in an Amazon warehouse somewhere go track down a a book that I've been wanting for a while and and put it in the mail and it shows up in my mailbox two days later. That might sound a little dumb to some of us this morning, but our pride tells us that if you will buy this or drink that or watch this or do that, you can feel better about yourself you can be back in charge you can be back in your self exalted position of god over your surroundings don't buy that lie cuz again here's the reminder when when you humble yourself before the lord you're like a glove you say here i am lord fill me and use me but when you are a prideful person when you struggle with pride when you make yourself big your life becomes like a brick can't use a brick as a glove. You can kind of try. This has some holes in it. I can stick my fingers in it, and I suppose I could try to use this as a glove. But what happens when you try to use a brick as a glove? Things get broken. People get hurt. You get stuck. But that's the reality of when we refuse to humble ourselves. Our lives become like a brick. And worst of all is that when We've grown up in church, or we spend so much time in church, and we know the right answer is is to be a glove. We know the right answer is to say, here I am, Lord. This is what I've got to be like. I've got to be a humble person. But we don't recognize that we're actually a brick. That's a dangerous place to be. And so when we do that, the people around us get bruised. They get broken. Because we're a brick. We're stuck in our pride. So take that picture and apply it to your marriage, to your parenting, to your friendships, and every opportunity to share the gospel you have. Which is going to be more effective, a glove or a brick? Which one of those is going to be more effective in those relationships, a glove or a brick? A humble person that has come to God and said, Here I am, Lord, fill me and use me. Or a hard brick that's going to hurt the people around you. It would be be very difficult to exaggerate how much of a problem pride is. Convinced that pride is absolutely 100% the most dangerous thing to our spiritual health. It can rear its ugly head at any time, even when we we think we have it beat, even honestly when uh, we've spent uh, Monday through Thursday of a week studying Esther chapter five, and then Friday morning, guess what gets called out in you? A little bit of pride. It can rear its ugly head at any time, but scripture is so... so clear about how serious pride is. Remember, our big idea this morning is straight from 1 Peter five and James four six to say that God opposes the proud. Opposes. If you're harboring a prideful attitude, God is against you and that attitude. It can't get any more clear than that. How serious is it? Proverbs six sixteen through nineteen contains God's hate list. Literally, it is a list of things that God hates. It starts out by saying there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And what's the first thing on that list? Haughty eyes. Pride. God hates pride. Hates. How risky is it? Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction, but haughty spirit before a fall. We're going to see that play out in Haman's life in the next couple of weeks to come. But in case that's not clear enough, Proverbs twenty nine twenty three says, One's pride will bring him low, but but there's grace. But he who is lowly in spirit, he who is humble, will obtain honor. So let me ask you the question I asked you at the beginning this morning if you were covered in pride and you knew that God was repulsed by that pride and repelled by that pride. Would you do whatever was necessary to scrub every ounce of that pride away from you? I hope the answer to that question is yes. Second question, again, if if you knew that God chose grace to the humble, if you knew that, that a humble attitude was pleasing and acceptable and inviting to the Lord, would you then do anything you could to cover yourself with a humble attitude from head to toe? Again, I hope the answer to that question would be yes. So how do we do that? It's the question we want to know. Spoiler alert, though. You can't do this on your own. I don't have three magic steps that will make you a humble person by lunch. But I do have three pointers that in partnership with the Holy Spirit, God will work in your life when you humble yourself before him to make you a humble person. First, pray. Even if you don't think you struggle with pride. Even if you don't think you have a pride problem, humble yourself and pray and ask God to show you the pride in your life. Blind spots are called blind spots for a reason. So get on your knees before the Lord and, and echo David in Psalm 139 and, and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there any be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And when the Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain on your pride, like a curtain and reveals it to you, keep praying. God, would you break apart my heart that's like a brick and turn it into a heart that's a glove? And then would you fill me and use me? It's the first step towards humility. Second, read your Bible. The scripture is like a mirror that God has given us to hold up in front of our lives so that we can examine ourselves and see where it's not matching up. So if you're serious about killing pride and and growing humility in your life, read your Bible and ask God to show you where your life is not matching up to what he expects of you in his word. If you do that and you're reading scripture as a Christian and and you're not seeing anything that that, that doesn't match up, if you're like, no, I'm doing all of this, I'm, I'm nailing this thing right here, you've got a pride problem. It's a pretty clear indicator. So then a humble person will approach God's word openly ready to repent and desperate for the Holy Spirit to keep making them more like Jesus. Third, get in community. Christian life is not a solo sport. This involves people around us. God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given us the church for many, many reasons, but not least of which is for accountability. So get in Together with a wise, mature brother or sister in Christ that you know loves the Lord and loves you and cares you and knows you well, and ask themselves if you're a prideful ask them if you're a prideful person. And this is about those blind spots. The biblical counselor Paul David Tripp says that self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. So ask the people around you. Ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your coworkers, ask someone from church that, again, you know loves you and cares about you. Just lay your life open before them and, and say, am I a prideful person? Do you see this in my life? Do you see it showing up? Hold me accountable. I, I, need, I need help here. I can't see it. It might be a blind spot. And ask them to keep you accountable and humble you. All along the way, though, throughout all of those steps, keeping repentance at the forefront of your mind, Repentance isn't just something that we, we do at the beginning of the Christian life to enter the Christian life. The Christian life literally is a life of repentance when the Holy Spirit shows us what's wrong in our lives and it's repenting and returning to the Lord and repenting and returning to the Lord and saying, God, would you make me more like your son, Jesus? All of this, I understand, might be extremely uncomfortable. It might be a painful process, but it will be so worth it because God opposes the pa- the proud, and gives grace to the humble. So one last time, let me ask you this morning as the worship team starts coming, which are you and which do you want to be? Do you want to be a glove that comes before the Lord and says, here I am, Lord, would you fill me and use me for your glory? Or do you want to stay like a brick that will bruise and injure the people around you because a brick doesn't recognize that it's a brick. It oftentimes thinks it's a glove. So, which are you and which do you want to be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that convicts us. We ask that you would work amazing ways in our lives to uncover pride, move us towards humility. Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who did not struggle with pride, Father. As Philippians 2 tells us, that he humbled himself by taking on the form of a man, and he came and died for us, Father. Thank you that that is our example. Thank you that he didn't say, no, not me, not for those people. Father, would you help us to mirror that to a world around us? Would you help us to mirror that love towards those people? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Church, I usually uh, throughout the week I think through what I'm going to say to close the service, and I didn't this week, for some reason. Um, but I want to say two things. I was praying about it as as, I was, as we were singing, and what Heather just said is absolutely true. That God is working through us in the Book of Esther. We're going to see a victory. That's true of the entire Christian life. Though. That's this this struggle. Eventually, we are going to see victory. One day, Jesus will come back. We will have all of our struggles gone. They will be over. He will, we will finally be made perfect, just like Jesus. So I was thinking about that as, how, how do we work through this stuff with, with humility? It's a lifelong process. So scripture tells us that, uh, that he will be faithful to complete what he has already started in us. There's not some a giant moment in our lives where we're like, cool, now I'm a humble person. He gives us these little moments. Moments like when you're preaching and you realize that you are entirely on the wrong page of your notes. (laughs) And we laugh and it's kind of funny, but as I was thinking about it, as soon as I realized what had happened, that's an opportunity to learn humility. So this week as you go, church, I I pray that you would look for those moments of humility. Ask God to show you to continue growing you to make you look more like Jesus. I do you want to read uh, Isaiah 66, six two says this, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Church, as you go, parents, if you're going to pick up your kids, it's a wonderful day outside. It's nice. We invite you to pick them up in the courtyard out here uh, once they're dismissed over there. But church, as you go, uh, go make disciples. Have a great week.